Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. What should you expect from tomorrow's inflation data? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, April 11, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Mike Alfred, founder and managing partner of Alpine Fox. Mike, welcome back. Hey, Ash. Good to be back again. Always a pleasure to have you here, Mike. Lots going on. We were talking uh, a little bit of chatter. You were just trading right into the close. What are you looking at? Well, I've, I've been layering into an SPY hedge short. You know, a lot of guys like to use put options. I like to just short the SPY right now because the brokers are giving you 4.3% uh, returns on the cash proceeds uh, when you short. Um, and you can use it like an accordion, right? Like I build it up over time. And then when the market falls, if it falls because of some sudden shock, let's say the inflation data is surprisingly bad, tomorrow it'll drop and I just buy it back, right? Take that cash, put it in my pocket and, and go back and, and layer back and do it again. Um, and it only costs 40 bips right now to borrow. So you're getting a nice spread by, by shorting the SPY. So I was just continuing to layer into that position right now just to, as an overlay over my long positions. Well, I teased into that at the top of the show, Mike. Uh, obviously, CPI data out tomorrow. Uh, consensus seems to be for 5.2% on an annualized basis, down uh, from 6% uh, in February. What are your thoughts? What are your expectations? And where are we relative to expectations in your view? Yeah, so it's it's obviously tricky because there's so many cross currents in this market. We've talked about this before over the last six months, but it does feel like inflation is is coming down. The market seems to think that inflation's coming down. Uh, I'd be surprised if this print tomorrow is is particularly important, to be honest. Like the market's sort of behaving like, hey, if, if it's worse than 5.2%, the Fed's gonna raise 25 bips. If it's better than 5.2%, than, uh, then the Fed's gonna raise 25 bips. And so as long as there's no banking crisis, which is the real issue, um, then I don't think it's going to be particularly eventful. And I think the Fed uh, and the Swiss National Bank and the ECB and the Japanese Central Bank have all essentially said, like, we're not going to let any banks fail at this point. And if, if they look like they're going to fail, we're going to force a bailout. We're going to align resources to make sure these banks don't go down. And so in that type of environment, it's not just a implied put on the entire market. It's an explicit put. Um, and so for that reason, I don't think it actually matters that much. I, I know that's a contrarian view, but unless you're trading, uh, you know, duration instruments, you're trading inflation sensitive instruments on a daily basis, I don't think you should care. Uh, I think inflation is broadly going to come down over the next uh, few quarters. And I think the market more or less knows that and it's priced up. Hey, so what's the thesis on that S&P short then? It's not, a, it's not really a thesis. It's, I view the S&P right now, again, there's a bunch of overvalued names, in my opinion, large cap tech in, in particular, that are still trading evaluations that I don't think are reasonable relative to where earnings are going. And so I view it as a dumb index, right? I want to have longs that are idiosyncratic and value oriented. And then I want to have dumb shorts. I don't want to be too smart for the market. I'm not going to try to short Tesla here because even though it's wildly overvalued, it could actually go up 50%, right? And just right. confound the skeptics. The S&P can't do that, right? Because it's a broad market index. It's got more than 500 stocks and a big chunk of those stocks in my view are, are are overvalued. And so what tends to happen is it tends to trade as a proxy on global dollar liquidity, 
right? It's not really a proxy on valuation, in my opinion. It's just a proxy on global dollar liquidity. So when liquidity goes up, as it has very recently, again, um, in part because of these bailouts. Of what these are your banks, metrics for, for dollar liquidity? So if you look at all of the research that, that folks have put out uh, recently, right? There was one I was just looking at the other day that basically said, look, look at the, Fed, the, the, the Fed's balance sheet, right? Look at all the other uh, balance sheets together and then look at all the lending that private lenders are doing. And I think what, what people might be missing is if you're just looking at the central bank balance sheets, it looks like they were trying to start sort of tapering down, right? Starting to, to tighten around the edges. And that whole process was, was paused essentially by uh, this banking crisis in mid-March. And in the meantime, uh, you know, liquidity sort of gone back up as evidenced by the S&P uh, going, you just draw a line on a chart of sort of global liquidity and you draw the S&P over it, it tends to follow it pretty closely. Um, as of right now, it appears that the S&P sort of fairly valued at these levels. Um, I just don't see how it can go down much more unless the, the Fed shrinks its balance sheet. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Fed policy action and the implications of inflation data coming out tomorrow. There's a story out earlier today uh, talking about Federal Reserve Bank of New York President John Williams uh, said uh, it basically essentially that the Fed has more to do in its fight to bring down inflation. Uh, and he says that one more interest rate hike this year is, quote, a reasonable place to start. Uh, thoughts about that? It sounds as though he's saying we got one more hike in us. Yeah, look, they've been very consistent, right? The Fed said for a while they're going to they're going to raise and they're going to keep raising until inflation comes down to to two percent. The only the only question I have is whether they'll eventually pivot and say three percent or four percent is okay, right? Because maybe maybe it's just really really hard to get back to two percent because of structural reasons related to labor or capital flows, et cetera. And maybe they don't want to drive the unemployment rate up too far. Maybe it's politically unpopular to, to do that. Um, and so I, I, they, haven't, they haven't been inconsistent in my view at all. They said in 2021, they were going to start uh, raising rates and then they were going to shrink the balance sheet. They, they started raising rates. They raised rates very aggressively. Everybody said they couldn't do that. A lot of the macro commentators said if they do that, it'll break uh, it'll break the government, it'll break the economy, right? It, it, it just won't work. And here we are at 5%, basically. Um, and and there's, they say they're going to continue to raise. We're just under 5%, but they say they're going to keep raising. And I believe them this time. Yeah, just under 5% on effective federal funds rate, upper limit right now, 5%, 475 to 500 basis points on the target. Uh, it looks like we closed out the day unched on S&P 500, 4108 spot 94 uh, maybe off some uh, fractional percentage point on my screen. Yeah, it was it was interesting because um, right at the close it started to to sell off, and my my hedge, which was uh, kind of red all day, right, red, 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 which is the way it should be when your longs are going up uh, in this type of structure, and then all of a sudden it turned green at the end of the day. So obviously people are people are concerned about what's going to happen tomorrow, and if the print is really really bad, like really surprisingly bad, then sure the S and P could. Drop and, and my target for you know what surprisingly bad mean is it six or above? Probably like in the five and a half to six range would be enough to to spook people a little bit because then it would be clear that because I think a lot of people don't believe the Fed right. I just said I believe the Fed. I believe they will raise, so I'm not going to be surprised. Which which is why I'm long value stocks, right? In, in large part, I like value. I still like value here. I like healthcare and staples and energy. I like dividend pairs. Um, because I think those stocks will actually do quite well, even in a higher rate environment. I think higher rates are generally healthy.
but the market tends to overreact in the short term. And so it's possible that it sells off. And again, that's why I like to have a hedge on because I don't want to be hit hard by that type of move unnecessarily because it's, it's, it'll be temporary, but it's still annoying. And so I'd rather just have some sort of protection on, again, as long as you can get paid to have protection on your portfolio, it seems like a no-brainer right now. Yeah, also something that we've got happening right now in Washington, D.C., of course, the IMF down for its annual meetings, lots of economists there uh, putting out lots of papers, the official reports, uh, WEO, GFSR, fiscal re uh, reporting, all of this stuff coming out. Uh, here are some of the key points out today. Uh, so IMF uh, has a call for global growth expected to be around 3%. Uh, this is the, the lowest uh, forecast, I guess, in the medium term uh, that the World Economic Outlook has predicted in over 30 years. That's pretty substantial. Short-term uh, IMF expects growth of 2.8% in uh, for the remainder of 2023. Uh, and finally, this is an interesting footnote, uh, this idea that all of these forecasts, quote, assumes that the recent financial sector stresses are contained. In other words, uh, assumes the banking system remains healthy. Uh, thoughts on that? I know that this can get a little abstract when you're doing aggregate global growth projections that include both developed markets and emerging markets, uh, but it certainly implies a deceleration, uh, possibly because of the headwinds that we've seen uh, around deglobalization uh, and war in Ukraine, among other factors, Mike. Yeah, those are two important factors, but also just broadly demographics, right? People are having less children uh, globally. And so, uh, you know, like the Western world, like people don't want to have babies at all. Uh, anymore. And so I, I think, I think you just have to expect with a, with a, what do we have? Like 9 billion people, is it seven, eight, nine billion people now on the planet? Um, there's a, there's a limit without a significant amount of technological advancement to how many people can sort of live comfortably on the surface of the planet. Like if I just want to put it simply. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that growth should, should slow down. If you, if you just extrapolate three or four or 5% growth across several decades from here, you get to numbers that are just astronomical when you compound those numbers. And so it, I think people should expect growth to come down and uh, broadly, but there still will be growth in certain subsectors, yeah. uh, cert certain geog geographies, certain, uh, you know, like tech technological sectors like AI, for example, could see explosive growth in a world where broad global growth is quite low. And that I, might actually create a higher uh, quality of life and standard of living for the average citizen anyway of the planet. Yeah, it doesn't, I, doesn't worry me much, to be, to be honest. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, it's certainly an important point that you make there, that these are not, uh, that these are, in fact, the roll-ups. These are the aggregation, and uh, the mileage may vary. There could be areas of extremely high growth, and, of course, conversely, areas of extremely low growth and challenges. Uh, but it is an aggregate number, and it does give you a certain sense of where global growth is heading. I guess the other interesting point on that is the caveat about the banking system remaining healthy. I'm just skimming here through some summarized bullet points from CNBC. Uh, look, no surprises here. I'm just going to read through this. Uh, this is from uh, Jenny Reed out uh, earlier today. Uh, banks are facing higher costs and losses on assets, uh, putting them in a more precarious situation. That's in quotes, quote, more precarious situation, close quote, and potentially leading to a pullback in lending, IMF chief economist, uh, Pierre-Olivier Garashi has told CNBC. Uh, this is something that we know uh, about well. We've covered it here on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, higher costs, certainly from rising rates and losses on assets 
particularly in the fixed income side, as you see rates rise, prices decline. It's a function of the mechanics of the way fixed income trades. Uh, what are your thoughts about this? I saw earlier uh, that the chief economist at IMF also modeled a worst case scenario, or I guess uh, less rosy scenario, where these issues that we're seeing in the banking sector are not contained. Uh, what are your thoughts about the relationship between the financial system in the U.S. and abroad and the relationship to asset prices, uh, particularly here in the U.S., whether it's fixed income uh, on the bond side or U.S. equities, Mike? Yeah, so look, banking's usually a pretty reliable, simple business, or at least it, it should be. Um, what we've experienced over the last three months or so is the result of uh, unprecedented increase in rates in a very short period, which just caught a lot of people flat-footed and offsides, right? Particularly Silicon Valley Bank is a, is a good example, right? And um, I, I'm not sure that that's like a broader problem, right? I, I, I tend to agree with the commentators I've seen that, that say, hey, look, this is going to be pretty well contained. What I'm more concerned about is, is the disruption that I see further out from fintech itself, right? I just don't think banking is going to be a great business relative to other technologically oriented businesses that, that touch finance from the fintech side. Like I think fintech can actually disrupt a big chunk of the banking system. And one example of that, believe it or not, is CBDCs. When you really think about what a CBDC is, if a central bank rolls out their own CBDC, in some ways they're going to disintermediate the private banks, right? And the commercial banks from the financial system because, because that government can go directly to the end consumer, the end citizen and say, here, I'm going to issue you uh, this instrument, this loan, uh, denominated in the CBDC directly. Um, and so right now the Fed really needs and the Treasury really needs the, the banking system, like the commercial banks, in order to run their playbook, right, to run the financial system. I'm not sure that's the case in 10 years or 20 years. And again, separate from all that, there's just traditional disruption from, from fintech. And so, I, look, I don't want to be, I don't want to be long banks. I don't want to own banks. I'm not interested in the banking business. I, I hope no more large banks go down. Um, but again, I think there's a huge put on the entire system in the short term anyway. So I just, I think it's a basically a nothing burger. Mike, you and I, of all people, managed to do it. We went 12 minutes without talking about Bitcoin, without talking about digital assets. Uh, let's break open the keg and chat a little bit about what's happening in Bitcoin right now. Lots of price action, lots of focus. Bitcoin over 30,000, 30,148 on my screen right now. Market cap above half a trillion dollars, up some 80% year to date this year. It's been something of a breakout. Uh, Mike, give us what your thoughts are. I know you spend a lot of time focusing on this space as I do. Uh, give us your thoughts. Look at a high level, this is completely to be expected, right? Uh, Bitcoin, in my view, is going to be worth a lot more by 2025, just looking at the cycle dynamics, right? Looking at the halving, um, Bitcoin's gonna become more scarce uh, about a year from now, maybe a little less. Uh, if you look at the underlying energy costs from the mining side, right? It's The Bitcoin has to get more expensive, otherwise the mining business is gonna fail. And if the mining business fails, then there's sort of no Bitcoin. It's very. It's the analogy for that is the server farm business, right? The traditional internet data center business, 2002, 2003. A lot of people got burned by internet stocks, and they said, "Hey, I'm giving up on the internet. Why would I ever invest in an internet data center?" And it turns out that was a really bad decision because you should have been buying internet data center uh, stocks at that time because they all did phenomenally well. Um, the same thing I think is sort of playing out now, right? Like Bitcoin is a, a tough asset for most people to get their arms around because it's digital and they can't hold it in their hand. It doesn't look and feel like anything else. But once you understand the relative scarcity of Bitcoin compared to the dollar, 
it's probably going to go up in dollar terms unless it fails. And again, I don't see it failing unless the, the Bitcoin data center, Bitcoin mining business fails. Um, so in the absence of that, the price will probably march higher over the next uh, few years. And, and I think you want to be long. Yeah, it's also an incredibly volatile asset for people who uh, have experienced backgrounds uh, in traditional finance space. Uh, the the mood swings are pretty wild. Uh, 80 plus percent drawdowns, 90 plus percent uh, you know, turnarounds, uh, this volatility, if you look at it over a very long time horizon, the actual uh, max drawdowns have been decreasing, they've been dampening, uh, but still relative to anything that we see here in the traditional finance sector in U.S. equities, uh, big cap U.S. equities, uh, the moves are just extreme. That's true. And actually, I think owning Bitcoin over the last six years or so has made me a better equity investor. Um, because I don't find the volatility, earnings-related volatility, for example, or news-related volatility, headline risk type volatility in equities no longer cause me any consternation or stress at all. I don't lose any sleep over my equities because Bitcoin's already beaten that out of me over the last six years. Because one of the things you learn as a Bitcoin holder is once you understand it fundamentally, you just have to put it in your portfolio at some level, right? 1%, 3%. You don't have to be a genius. Just just choose a level, put it in there, and basically let it let it go. Uh, for four or five years. And if you do that, historically, it's worked quite well. Again, that type of mindset when applied to equities also works well. It's very similar to what Buffett does. He'll buy stock in the 1980s and never sell it, right? And here we are, uh, you know, 40 plus years later, and he's still holding, you know, most of the shares of Coca-Cola and American Express that he bought 40 or 50 years ago. Um, that strategy works well. And, and we know it works well because he's one of the wealthiest people in the world. But, but, but for whatever reason, maybe it's the talking heads on CNBC and the 24-7 news cycle, people believe they've got to trade a lot more than they actually do. I think Bitcoin's great for teaching people about volatility being different than risk. The real risk here is, is permanent loss of capital, whether that's because you're trading stupidly, right? You're buying high and selling low, or you're using leverage and blowing yourself up, or you're letting your money be degraded by inflation, right? If inflation's running at 5 or 6%, um, and you're not at least keeping up to that, your purchasing power is going down. And so again, like, if Bitcoin can teach you one thing, it's it's how to hold on to a high quality asset and hold it for long periods and ignore the volatility. Hey, talking of which Bitcoin and price, I wanted to take a look at a clip uh, from a conversation that I had uh, with Francis Hunt. Uh, this is a deep dive called an upcoming trend contraction in the broader energy complex. But we talk about Bitcoin specifically. This is out right now on the essential tier. Let's take a look. We think Bitcoin's going at least for a 40 to 42 and a half K uh, run. Following a major reversal, uh, I'm going to just uh, switch the lights out on all the lines there, but uh, so that it's easy to spot this. But 25k uh, as such a key level for yeah. a chart uh, such as Bitcoin. So many people have spoken of 100,000 and obviously 50,000. Uh, and for us, this uh, this constituted, and I'll go with the fat cokey here, a left shoulder here. That was a bit of a rising wedge. We fell further. This was the FTX additional events that was November uh, of last year. And then we have the right shoulder here. So I want to give a bit of good news to your crypto audience. Um, we've been bears and boring bears because we've stuck with it for an extended period. So we have, you know, we are turning. This is, these flags have all played out to targets. Um, there was in fact a head and shoulder we discussed before over there. That called literally the bottom that ran uh, 15 and a half. That was a target down there. So I've got a lot of lines that will overwhelm everybody on this big time frame. So a little bit of spinning tops and tightness here. You could have 
a short dip towards the neckline, but we see a return back into where these flag zones were. And that neckline of that head and shoulder runs at 42 and a half, and you've got the midpoint of this big bear flag. I think you get a bit of heavy traffic there, might run into a bit of bottleneck and churn a little bit, but that's a nice move. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So, Mike, the headline number there from Francis Hunt, 40,000 to 42,500 based on technical factors. Uh, Mike, do you look at technical factors when you evaluate Bitcoin uh, or is this just something that you're a long term investor in? Uh, and if not, what do you think of what those price levels suggest? Yes. So I, I try not to, to be honest. Um, I, I razz the technical guys on Twitter quite frequently and and maybe poke a little bit too much fun at the at the traders. But Look, I think 40, 40 to 50,000 is the right level for next spring, Q1, Q2 anyway, uh, just based on uh, on the fundamentals of the price that's required in order to support the growth of the hash rate um, that's already built into the price at this point. And so I think we're in alignment. I think, I don't know, I don't think he gave, Francis didn't give a time frame there, but I think that 40 to 50K level is is to be expected within the next 12 months. All right, lots of questions percolating in uh, from YouTube and on the Real Vision platform both. Let's just jump in and take some of these questions uh, because we've got some really good ones here. The first one comes to us from No One Knows Thyself. Does the sell-off in the last 30 minutes of the S&P and NASDAQ indicate markets indecision around CPI numbers, Mike? I think it's just, I, I don't know if it's an indecision in so much as it's just a general uh, fear of any uh, you know, any sort of surprise event. And we saw that last month, like all of the volatility that was priced in the market was priced in in like three or four trading days in advance, right? Everybody was buying puts around the the CPI prints, around the, the Fed meeting, et cetera. And so people are just hyper-focused on any event right now, any catalyst for, for downside. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the sentiment has been so amazingly bearish. Uh, if you If you look at the AAII, uh, sentiment survey. If you look at like just the general views on Twitter, if you listen to the talking heads uh, and, and some of the top uh, Wall Street analysts, et cetera, they've been really bearish. So I think there are a lot of people that are positioned negatively. In fact, I saw some uh, data showing that put option buying is near uh, all-time highs recently. So I, I just think there's a lot of people positioned for downside and they might continue to be frustrated if there's not a negative surprise here. Here comes another one from Joseph Leone about uh, what's happening in the trad side space. Uh, Mike, you mentioned value. What is excuse me? You mentioned what value is consumer staples and healthcare represent value to you? I'm a long only manager. Yeah. So, what's the question though? <laughs> is he agreeing? I think the question is uh, what what constitutes value to you in consumer staples and healthcare? Yeah. So, so like a couple of examples, right? I've, I've given before. Like I think Bristol Myers Squibb and Merck and a couple of the other biopharma uh, companies are still quite cheap here, right? Trading at a three plus percent yield anywhere from call it eight to, to 12, 13 times earnings, very high quality businesses. They've refilled their pipelines to some degree. Um, I really like those, those names here. I continue to like them. I continue to add to them. Um, in, in Staples, there aren't, to, to be honest, there isn't really a lot in Staples. To like one of the sectors, the subsectors that that has been uh, really cheap, uh, based on historical earnings, is is beer. Believe it or not, so Anheuser Busch, I called that out 
uh, a couple times over the last six months, once on Bloomberg and again on uh, with Maggie Lake on the show, I think in January, Anheuser-Busch was trading um, at like 14, 15 times earnings, which was historically very, very cheap. It's, it's since rallied quite substantially, so I don't know if it's quite as cheap. But the one I like the most right now is actually Constellation Brands. Ticker is STZ. It's a growth company. It's a rare growth company in beer because craft beer and sort of the traditional light lager domestic companies like Miller, Coors, and, and Bud have been kind of in the tank for a while. But Constellation's claim to fame is the Mexican imports. Modelo, Corona Pacifico Modelo has been a huge winner. It's still growing at 8 or 9%. Uh, they dominate in California and Nevada. They're really expanding rapidly in Texas and Florida. It's still trading at right around 20 times earnings. I think it should trade at 25 times earnings. Um, so I think there's some multiple expansion there in addition to just organic growth. Yeah. Next question uh, comes to us from G. Blackburn. And maybe you could explain uh, some of the implications in this question, particularly for people who don't have fixed income backgrounds. The question is spreads still hanging in for IG credit. That, of course, is investment grade. Uh, and tighter credit conditions. Are the tighter credit conditions a nothing burger or something to worry about? Uh, so, Mike, give us your sense of uh, what's happening in investment grade credit uh, and credit conditions in uh, in uh, the that uh, are tighter credit conditions, a, a nothing burger. So he's asking uh, essentially uh, if you think these tightening credit conditions are problematic. Well, so I tend to watch the high yield spreads more because the high yield is a better indicator for me about broader stress and and typically is related to stress in the equity market more so than you know what's going on in investment grade. Uh, so that that's that's why, really why is that the case, Mike? Explain why that is. It may, I, I mean, it's intuitively it makes sense because you want to know what riskier credits are doing relative uh, yeah. to Treasuries. But what's the uh, distinction, and why might uh, someone yeah. watch investment grade? Well, I think I think if you look at the capital stack, high yield is much closer to equity, right? right. In the, in in terms of its risk right. and kind of return characteristics, and, and it, it may be that high yield is actually mo more closely similar to investment grade, right? But investment grade generally you're going to get a lower yield because the idea is you have a lower risk. Over a long period of time, you should expect to get a higher yield in equity, um, you know, especially well-selected equity. If you're doing it from a sort of risk-adjusted basis, if you're doing it from a value-oriented basis, you should do quite well in equities relative to bonds broadly. But, but bonds should be, especially investment grades, should be pretty, pretty safe, right? Because even if the company fails, which it generally won't, right? Investment grade a lot of times these are companies that like have a 1% odds of bankruptcy over the next 50 years, right? And so like your odds of losing money in a bankruptcy are very low. But even if a company goes bankrupt in that, in that situation, you're at the top of the capital stack. You should get a lot of your money back. You may end up reorganizing that company and, and taking equity at that point. Um, so, so again, I focus more on high yield. Uh, I don't see any surprising signs. Like there should be a restriction in credit. Credit conditions should get tighter given that the banks are under pressure uh, because rates have gone up so much and they're all losing money uh, on securities. They're, they're held to maturity securities. They're losing money on loans they've already made. Um, and so I, I would expect credit conditions to restrict it. And to some degree, that might actually be bullish for equities again because mm -hmm. it may cause the Fed to pull back sooner. And they've actually alluded to that. The one thing the Fed seems to be closely focused on right now that would cause them to slow down is a massive uh, contraction in, in credit. Um, so again, if, if you were to see that, paradoxically, it might actually be bullish six months or nine months out for equities. I know people are going to hate that I'm saying that, but so far, that's pretty much every time you've, you've tilted bullish equities when everybody's been bearish, right? It's been right. So we'll see if that continues. 
So we're back in these weird paradoxical uh, times where bad news is good news uh, again. Uh, next question. Oh, here they come. Here comes the quick crypto questions, Mike. First one from Nico F. Uh, curious on Mike's take on PayPal's crypto offering. I have no exposure, but I'm just wondering. Thanks. By the way, we should say uh, for people who may not be familiar, news out this morning. I'm just going to read this here from Benzinga, uh, breaking news out report this morning. Visa Incorporated tapped PayPal Holdings Inc. and Venmo to pilot Visa Plus, which aims to help individuals move money quickly and securely between different person-to-person -person digital payment apps. Last year, Venmo and PayPal users in the U.S. Uh, later this year, excuse me, later this year, Venmo and PayPal users in the U.S. can start moving money seamlessly between the two firms. Yeah, so I've been watching PayPal candidly. It's on my, it's been on my watch list for a while. I kind of like that everybody hates it. I kind of like that they pissed off the Bitcoin maxis and other folks, uh, you know, for, for some of the stuff they've done. Um, and if it falls further, uh, you know, my target for it, it would be like, if there is a sort of macro related drawdown in the next call it, couple quarters and it, it were to fall into the mid sixties or the low sixties at that level, I would probably take a position in the fund. So it's on my radar. I don't think it's quite cheap enough yet. Mm. Um, it's not interesting enough at this level, but if it falls further, I'd be interested. And by the way, talking about just to continue the news flow here, Visa Plus will not require users to have a Visa card. Instead, by setting up a personalized payment address linked to their Venmo or PayPal account, individuals using either app can receive and send payments quickly and securely between the platforms again from Benzinga this morning. Uh, certainly sounds as though uh, Visa is looking to move beyond the plastic credit card world uh, and ties to banks. Absolutely. And they have to. I was just thinking about this the other day. I mean, Visa and MasterCard are two of the most favorite stocks by both traditional uh, value investors and uh, hedge funds. You look at the, all the big hedge funds, they all want to hold Visa and MasterCard, and they're just great businesses. The high ROIC, they compound capital over time. But my question at some point is, do they run out of runway? Are they not subject to some of the same disruptive forces that will disrupt the banking sector uh, broadly going forward? And so that's why I don't own them. I they're quite expensive in my view. They're great businesses, but they're expensive and I can't find a reason to own them. I know we're running out of time, uh, but if we could do a quick speed round on some of these remaining questions just to get some of these done. Uh, next one comes to us from Austin Tacker. Does Mike expect an ATH in Bitcoin this year? That of course is all time high or 2425. Uh, what are your thoughts, Mike? He's looking at technical I, levels. There's definitely gonna be an all time high by 25. If it happens this year, you should expect a pullback. Uh, Robert Stefik, what's your outlook on Bitcoin mining stocks? This one comes to us from Twitter. Well, he already knows because I, I think I recognize that name. It might be <laughs> one of my followers. But yeah, I'm, I'm super long. I have five or 10 million shares now of some of these names, and I'm, I'm holding them until at least 2025, 26. Jason Hartgrave asks, is Bitcoin lightning adoption or payment processing uptake play into investment decisions, or is it largely viewed as just a store of value? I mean, I think for, for venture investors, absolutely. Everybody's looking at Lightning right now, but there isn't really a big play for anything that's publicly traded in my view yet. Uh, but that, that'll probably start happening in the next year or two. Okay, here's one that I know we can't do a speed round on because uh, it's a, a question with bigger scope. The question comes to us from Easy Monet, GPTC Thoughts, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, something I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about. Yeah, I'm long. Uh, I, I really liked the... I listened to the entire clip of the uh, Circuit of Appeals Court, uh, you know, the other day, whenever, whenever that was, like a month ago. Uh, obviously, it's up a lot. It went over 18 today. 
it's still trading at a discount. I think you want to be long. Like I don't wouldn't own it over Bitcoin, but I think given the catalyst here, it's highly likely that some of that uh, discount will will be arbed out. You know, over the next twelve months. Mike, as always, when you join us on Real Vision Daily Briefing or Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing, we've covered a lot of ground. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Yeah, I think I think you want to be long idiosyncratic value uh, and you want to be short dumb indexes. I think that's where I'd leave it. And if you want to sprinkle some Bitcoin on top, you'll 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 juice those returns. I mean, Bitcoin's up 82% year to date. Even if you hate it, at some point you have to ask yourself why you don't own it. Hey, Mike, always a pleasure. I always enjoy these conversations. Definitely come back again. We got to keep doing this. Thank you, Ash. Mike Alfred, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow, 4 p.m. Eastern time. See you then. Have a great afternoon, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, Head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.